0: Hello beautiful people, welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies at God is Gray XO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com God is Gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi,
1: beautiful
2: beautiful people.
0: Today,
1: I have a much requested guest. This is Phil Drysdale of the Phil Drysdale Show, which is a podcast. And Phil's focus is really on helping people through the process of deconstruction. And we were just talking about how he's doing a lot more research on it. Some of the misconceptions that mega pastors and more conservative Christians have about progressive Christianity. Um, how it's perceived to be a bunch of us that just want to get laid and, and party or something versus people that have really agonized to figure out what we actually believe and how it serves our faith and our spirituality. It's not an easy road to walk down. Any of you that have been there know this um any of you on that path welcome to this conversation i hope you feel more seen and understood and anyone that's here with cynicism i'm so glad you're listening because i hope we can educate some people a bit mm-hmm. more on what progressive christianity is uh what it looks like to deconstruct even the process sometimes people do lose their faith and that's something to mm-hmm. discussed too Uh, For people that are considering deconstruction, it is a risk that you run, and I think it's worth acknowledging. I came out on the other side as a Christian, as a progressive Christian, so it really depends. Um, Anyway, hello, Phil.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) Uh, Phil was one of my very, very OG uh, people to ask if I would do an interview. So we have like some backlog. I'd be interested to listen to it again. I probably grown a lot even since that conversation
2: yeah it's it's been over a year so I can imagine
1: yeah I know you were saying I didn't have a baby none of that so it's been a minute
2: (laughs) you created a whole human being in that time
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) did you initially set out to help people through deconstruction or did you kind of just start talking and then that is the audience that formed around you
2: Sure. So before I did what I'm doing right now, um, I was kind of part of the kind of charismatic evangelical scene and I, uh, I traveled and I spoke, I wrote blogs, I put out videos and stuff. Um, if you're really good at your Google search and you'll still find my old school stuff, um, which is really funny given where I am now. Um, but I would speak all over the world and lots of churches, conferences, ministry schools, colleges, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's through doing that, that I kind of shifted um, what I was doing to what I'm doing now in that when you travel and you speak, it's this weird kind of privileged position where um, when you go to someone else's church and you share from the front, people go, oh, I want to talk to this person that like they deem is like on par with their pastor. For some reason, I guess the pastor asked you to speak or whatever, but he's not going to kick you at the church like your pastor, right? So you're like, I, I found like all these people coming to me and like sharing openly like their secrets, things that weren't working for them in their church, maybe um, struggles they were having. And, and through traveling, like at the height of my um, ministry that I had, I was probably speaking in about, 200 uh, different venues a year about 180 days of the year I was traveling and so I was going through a lot of people in my conversations and you'd stay with hosts guests you know like you know you'd be a guest in their home and you go back and talk with them afterwards and stuff and I just started to realize oh my god Christianity is not working in the flavor it's offered for so many people and yet people seem to kind of just be kind of hanging in there very unsettled quite unhappy with lots of questions they don't feel they can ask or if they have asked they've got really bad answers but kind of picked up on the kind of unspoken hint of like let's not go any deeper on this or it's gonna be a problem for you um and this is not just people in the church that were like kind of the lay people this was predominantly most of the people I was spending my time with people I was staying with the leaders the pastors even Mm. um and so I started to kind of like work more and more with those people and engage with those people when I would do stuff online it it skewed to a lot of people that were kind of like disconnected from their church seemed to follow me online they were looking for some sort of community that um would go to that depth that they couldn't find in their church um and so it, it kind of just naturally kind of evolved from there um and and ultimately I kind of straddled that fence for many years kind of not fully kind of revealing where i was at which i've been kind of doing this for about 10 years now maybe 11 12 years um but wanted to work within the church and try and help people and, and bring people forwards and you know make some baby steps in the right direction and i think if i'd thrown the whole tree at them they would have died but i was like maybe if i plant some seeds and just kind of let some weeds grow in the cracks i mean i i am the devil that you were warned by by your pastor right i was going to teach you something that would kind of eventually you know destroy your whole life. I was 11 in the bread. Um, But I was just trying to help people make um, some just questions, ask if they're, if they really believe what they believed and and seek out what they really believed, really engage with their faith. Um, And what I realized over time was ultimately in the church, you have millions of pastors and leaders that are there for you. If church is working for you, if you are working in a conventional um, Christian church um that's your day-to-day life and it works for you and you like it you've got no shortage of pastors peers uh, accountability buddies disciples mentors the whole system is going to work for you but for all these people that it wasn't working on for they had nobody you know we're talking before the show like the space has kind of emerged and exploded um, as far as um, leaders thought leaders you know people like that that are sharing and giving resources and helping um, in the last few years, that's really kind of brought to the forefront and exploded. But like, there was no one doing this five, six years ago. It felt like it, at least I'm sure there was, I'm sure it was plenty of people, but you know, you don't see them. Um, And so for me, I was like, God, there's like millions of people here. And no one is there for them. Um, Or at least it's gonna be hard for them to find people. And so I really decided, you know what, I don't care if I lose all my audience of like, you know, evangelical, charismatic Christians, all those kind of people don't really care if I don't get to speak in churches or conferences anymore. I never really liked that. Um, So (laughs) I'm not a big church service person anyway. Um, So that that was never a downside. But really what needs to happen is, is these people that have no one need people to kind of rise up and, and support them and encourage them. And it's, it's, it's the fastest growing spiritual movement in America today is the deconstructing Christian. And so what you have is every day in America, 2,700 people leave church. So that would be dechurched. Um, that's a lot of people. It's about a million a year, but off those 2,700 every day, 78 percent still profess to hold some kind of faith Um, that might be radically different than the average you know churchgoer um, but for a lot of people it's not that different they just aren't able to engage with the church the institution maybe a couple of the beliefs just don't work for them but they can't find somewhere that will accept them with those beliefs changed Um, but it's a huge movement. It's about 2000 people a day leaving church that still want to have some form of spiritual belief and often need someone to kind of like support them, encourage them, not tell them what to do, because usually that's one of the reasons people leave. They're kind of done with being told what to do. Right. Um, And so that's the last thing I want to be is I don't want to be that. And I think a lot of people in this space try to be that, and that can be quite problematic. We can maybe go into that. Um, But generally speaking, people want someone that's going to just encourage them. It's okay. You're not alone. You can we feel really alone, even though it's one of the it's the fastest growing spiritual movement uh, in America right now. Anyway, sorry, huge rambling of like how I got from there to here. But um, yeah, as far as an introduction, that was short. Trust me.
1: <laughs> no, that's a great broad overview of your experience. And I had the same experience. Obviously I deconstructed, for 10 years, I think. And I called it my prodigal son journey because mm-hmm. I had, the, because there was no language for deconstruction. There was no yeah. progressive Christianity. It was just, oh, I'm being a rebellious, terrible, bad girl. But I still feel very, very innately, strongly connected to the divine, to Jesus. And, you know, my inner monologue was always like, okay, I'm doing this stuff for a while, I'm being a really bad girl for a while, I'm not going to church, I'm not listening to pastors, I'm sleeping with whoever I want, but I will go back, I promise. And Mm. I always thought that going back, and the reason it took 10 years to, quote, go back, and then I never ended up staying back, is because I was dreading it. It, it, I never fit in that box. And that was the Mm. reason that I had such a hard rebellion to begin with. And, you know, I've been very open about um, sexual exploration for me, drug experimentation would be some of the main like points of rebellion, quote unquote, that I went into. And I found a lot of it extremely unhealthy because there Mm. was no balance to it at all. It was just full-on rebellion from what I knew. And our reconstruction has been so, so, so beautiful for me because I, in the quietness and stillness of a lot of heartbreak, a lot of pain that that sort of rebellion brought me into, I still had these deeply profound moments of connecting to Jesus and feeling like you're still going to be okay, like come over here and starting to challenge some of the things that made me Mm. know from the bottom of my heart that I actually would never have to return to Christianity as I once knew it. So a huge part of my mission from the get-go has been you know, do what I say, not as I do. <laughs> like I've had a terrible deconstruction where I had <laughs> my body a lot and I, I wasn't healthy and I wasn't in good relationships. I don't want that to happen to any of you. I sure. want you to listen to me and hear like, if you're curious about having sex with a stranger that you just met at a bar or something after Corona, uh, <laughs> I don't highly recommend it. I don't believe you're going to have some like crazy, amazing experience. Who knows? Maybe you will. I have, but at the same time, I want people to just be able to give themselves permission to even think those things. Mm, and be like, yeah, I'm going to dip my toe in there or even think, what if I did that? Just so you can experiment with your thoughts and and really figure out what you actually believe. And then if you do do those things and it works out beautifully or it works out horribly to not be crawling across the floor on your knees, bleeding out for 20 years, begging for forgiveness. It's just like that really steady balance of you're messing up a little bit, but then you're centering and then you're doing something beautiful and you're centering and then you Mm. find your center eventually was what I discovered. Yeah. This resonates with you or you've heard it from a lot of uh, deconstructors?
2: Yeah. I mean, the the thing about deconstruction is it's going to look really, really similar across the broad spread of the spectrum. And yet it will be really unique to every person. You know, every person ultimately is going to deconstruct um, their own individual components that they don't need they don't uh work with or jive or don't make sense to them um ultimately you know the process of deconstruction is looking at what you have and going okay i like some of this but a good part of this has to go you know you think of you inherit an old house from your grandparents or something and you go eh, i like this house it's kind of got some character but oh, that wall needs to come down and I'd like to turn that into a diner kitchen rather than like, you know, two separate rooms. You try and tweak some things and then you knock down the wall in between and you realize, oh crap, like the roof's now sagging. This is not going to work. And so then you have to start taking more down. And and sometimes that does happen as you start to kind of take parts uh, away, things can go wrong. Um, Or other things need to go, or maybe you go, Gosh, I wish I could put that wall back in. Um, But you ultimately build a better wall in its place, right? You know, very similar, um, same sort of place, same sort of um, ability to bear weight, but it's better. Sometimes
1: you just had to know that the Uh wall needed to be there. So, like, sometimes you just have to kick down the wall and be like, Oh, dang, that wall necessary you know
2: and, and we all know this as as humans we see people occasionally who are on their path and you go uh, uh, you know what I, I, anything i say you're going to still make that mistake and you'll learn the lesson okay on <laughs> my, you go you know
1: it's not about me he's always like yeah. i'll tell you the right thing, but i know you're gonna do the wrong thing and then you'll come back
2: around <laughs> that's it well kindred spirits because that is me to a t i only learn by bad mistakes so <laughs> But I've learned them really well. Um, Yeah, and so that that will happen a lot, and it does happen a lot for people. I think a lot of the time what people find is, and you might have found this in your description, what you're describing there as your end point, is just a very healthy way of doing life, you know, I'll push their own, maybe not like, you know, having that balance room to explore, but room to kind of like give yourself grace, have self-compassion, you know, respond to failings. Well, respond to going well, well, and pursue it more. Like that's just a kind of fairly normative, healthy thing and a healthy upbringing um, in our culture. In Christianity, that is not normative for a lot of people. They are taught to fear any kind of exploration. There are clear-cut boundaries everywhere. And often they're way more um extreme than anything that they really can tie to church tradition or, or even the Bible. You know, like I did a post today on um uh, what people um what people what rules people had built around their sexual purity codes as teenagers. And there's a whole bunch of great comments on my Instagram. I was I was dying. Mm-hmm. But like I, I had like I I found a new word today called, what was it? Interdigitary, which means to interlock your fingers when you hold hands. I didn't even know there's a word for that, but you know who does people that were steeped in purity culture, apparently, because that was a rule, you know, don't do that. Um, and so like, you know, you, you look at things like that and you're like, I don't see in the Bible it mentioning anywhere. Don't interlock your fingers with someone of the opposite sex, or they'll be pregnant and you have eight STDs next week. You know, like that's probably not, you know, the next step of that, but we're so fearful of that end goal you know, whatever that might be, uh, given an example of like an extreme kind of scenario for the average evangelical mom panicking, um, you know, but it tends not to come from just kissing someone or holding their hand. But we we draw our lines so far back, right? And none of it's connected to anything really um, rooted in common sense. You know, when we look at marriage and dating and things, like, I mean, dating doesn't exist in the Bible, how we manage to bring up all these dating codes when dating is only a couple hundred years old from the Bible is astonishing anyway. Um, but yeah, we, we, we kind of overreact so much that what people end up doing is, is they create this huge need for people to deconstruct, you know, they, they end up going, gosh, I am sexually totally screwed up. Like, you know, like, man, like, because I've been told that women are objects and I have no autonomy as a male and I'm just lusting after them 24-7 and if I hold hands with them in a room behind a closed door, I'm just going to have sex with them. There's no chance that won't happen. It's like, you know it's insane. I was, I was taught stuff like that. And I really believed stuff like that when I was growing up. What's fascinating is as a teenage boy, I would have loved that to happen, but you know, it didn't, didn't happen at all ever, you know, I couldn't catch a date anywhere. Um, and so, you know, all my leaders are going, Oh my God, like, yeah, it's terrifying. Never be alone with a woman. I'm like, dang, I've been alone with a lot of women and nothing has ever happened. I'm <laughs> like, I've got like leprosy or something, you know? Um, and so it's just funny, isn't it? Like how we create these things but then what we have is we then have women that are totally filled with shame because they're 40 and they're winging, wearing a, a like a string um, strapped top or something and they're full of shame going oh gosh this is a bit revealing and they they've got kids and stuff and like they're, like they're still racked with the shame from like 20 years ago 25 years ago oh, yeah. um, it's just it's 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 um, an an inevitability for a lot of people when we create such over-the-top prohibitions to try and box in what faith should be. Um, when faith was always quite an exploration anyway, you look at how Jews engage with faith, it's very exploratory. Well, yes. um, anyways, that's probably a bit of a ramble on a side, but
1: no, um, I mean, you, yeah. like, I feel like you just like, snapped a bunch of pancakes or something and they're all different issues and that really goes to show how intensive it is to break these things down because or it's like a domino effect as well. It's just like you clink one down and they just keep tumbling down the row because when you construct whether or not you're allowed to hold hands with someone and then you realize you know how messed up you've been sexually in all different facets and your shame and everything Mm. that's on you and your conception of what a woman is supposed to be, a man is supposed to be It's just, it's really exhausting. And for me, and I I know that it's a common thread, it steals your intuitive power away. And I think one of the trippiest things with evangelicalism and with people that resist educators like you and I is that I see a faith built on fear just objectively, and I'm not trying to sound judgmental, but it's like if you're afraid of being in a in a room, Mike Pence, with a random <laughs> woman, then you know you have built that idea on fear. I don't know how else yeah. to tell you it. It's not self control. It's not even self restraint or like a holistic view. Also, it immediately sexualizes the opposite sex just for having different genitalia. It's it's all a disaster to me. The foundation is. Crumbly from the get go. I am trying to, I think, really help people understand the verbiage we're given in evangelicalism versus what we're trying to deconstruct and teach people anew that Mm. is biblically sound, that is anchored in a real life faith. And one of those examples is freedom in Christ. I have been caged in, boxed in unable to be the person that I was born to be so many times living in quote freedom in Christ, jumping yeah. up, and down in the evangelical service. And so if they keep telling us, you know, you have freedom in your sexuality, if you dress a certain way and you just wait for your husband to ride up on a horse and everything is great. And this is freedom in Christ, but you still feel like you can't even move. You can't breathe. You cannot be yourself above all else yeah like how do we start deconstructing even that idea for people or like how do we help people understand what is built on faith and and true autonomy that is not scary that is intuition yeah. it's like what's the difference between intuition and spirit you're telling me my heart's deceitful but to listen to spirit <laughs> I'm like well then what is spirit and there's kind of a Spirit's
2: the one that agrees with me, Brenda. It's simple, right? <laughs> and that's how ultimately a lot of leaders work.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Say God is counterintuitive and Holy Spirit is counterintuitive. So then you're just like, you're constantly doing, it's not a dance. It's like a clunky, desperate maneuver to try to fit yourself into these ideas yeah i know that's tangential but it's just like that is all that's in that box and it is a box and helping people understand that everything is almost the opposite we're being told we're being given freedom and then we're being immediately repressed because we're told that freedom is these very specific things and it's like no that's not freedom And also, if you're not allowed to explore your faith, you're not allowed to explore, if you think you hear divinity's voice and you turn down the wrong alley and something bad happens, that's a beautiful moment to check in and be like, oh, no, I guess I was wrong on that. Why? Or maybe it went wrong for a different reason versus you should have opened up your Bible and done exactly what it said and you would have never had that happen, you know? Because the
2: Bible definitely will talk about that alley and whether you should turn down it or not.
1: Exactly. I, I guess so. In summary, I think I'm just talking about the semantics and how difficult yeah. they are to overcome when yeah. everything is being told to you in some sort of opposite. Yeah. Mirror.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is this is where you know where, this is where the similarities come in. So everyone deconstructs from their reasons. So I know a lot of people that follow you are probably. Um, questioning or don't like that you're questioning um sexual ethics right so you look at maybe um christianity you go this is beautiful i love the kind of the general ethics of love of love your neighbors yourself i love jesus is his forgiving servant you know all this amazing stuff god who comes down to serve humanity to love humanity to lay his life down i love all that but like what is this deal with like what, no sex before marriage or like you know being like extraordinarily weirdly prudish or you know any of these kind of like different components you start questioning that but then you when you look at that you have to start looking at the bible you have to read more into it you have to look at it and go well i'm gonna to have to figure out what it says um and so this is where it starts to come down to some of the similarities and some of the similarities um if you're going to stay within the confines of Christianity, which a lot of people that deconstruct don't, whether seasonally and they come back or they completely hang up their, their hats, um, I'm not here to tell people where they should end up. I, I'm just here to hang out with them on the journey, um, which gives me a lot of insight into how different people do it right? Yeah, yeah
1: sorry. Um, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, you're
2: fine. Um, but what, one of the similarities is you're going to have to look at the Bible and you're going to have to start thinking about, well, how are we going to look at this? Because you s- say, for example, something like sex and, and things like that, you look at the Bible and you do realize, oh, wait, well, of course, they're not talking about marriage like we talk about marriage anyway, because people didn't get married because they fell in love with someone until about 250 years ago. Up until then, it was arranged marriages everywhere on the globe. Mm-hmm. still arranged marriages in a lot of places around the world but yeah. up until then everywhere so when they're talking about like getting married or being engaged and not sleeping before they're talking about property yeah property are women and women are property they're talking about maintaining the property and so you go okay so that's what the bible is so now i'm reading it in context maybe that means something different and therefore if the world has changed and marriage doesn't mean that do i have to read that to mean what it means today, or does it talk about something else? Um, and so you start looking at these different layers, and you go, I'm going to have to like, take this more seriously. This is one of the myths that people have about people that deconstruct, is that one of the myths is they, did, they didn't know their Bible, they didn't know the, their faith. What's fascinating is research has shown again and again and again that people that deconstruct and people that dechurch that's people that leave church permanently, um, almost always across the board have a higher level of engagement with their faith and a higher level of um, being involved in church, whether it's being leaders, pastors, things like that, than the general populace of church. So if you just grabbed 100 people in church and said, how involved are you? How passionate about your faith are you? And then you grabbed 100 people that had left church or deconstructed and said, when you were in church, how involved were you and how passionate were?" you, they're much, much more engaged. And so these people are much more serious. They know their Bible just as well, if not better. Um, And so it's not about um, not taking things seriously, not knowing the Bible. It's actually often because they did seek out what the Bible was saying that they started to go, huh, this isn't making any sense because what's been taught to me isn't fair. And so what happens is the Bible becomes a centerpiece of this conversation for a lot of people, people that can grapple with it and make it, match up and line up often end up in the kind of camps that you are progressive christianity that kind of um, world kind of mainline church generally speaking would be kind of their wheelhouse uh, maybe some house churches uh, or maybe just going ah church is not for me but i love jesus and i'll keep doing that in my own kind of world um, people that really can't do it on any level often don't they, they, they'll move into some sort of agnosticism some other spirituality maybe following jesus um Perceiving God to be similar to when they were in Christianity, but quite different potentially. Um, but I think the Bible is a big linchpin in like how people navigate their deconstruction because, like it or not, the Bible is our idol as evangelicals. It's it's what everything's based on, and and it's not the Bible; it's our interpretation of the Bible. Right? I mean, any good theologian will laugh at you if you say, "Oh, the Bible says this," because the Bible doesn't say this. It's my interpretation of the Bible reads it that way um yeah. i know you had pns didn't you so he he went into that i'm sure and, yeah. no yeah
1: i love pns he's amazing um i was gonna say to that i keep saying and your sound may be more educated than this on this than i am um i keep assuming that people on the evangelical side uh stick to biblical literalism Whereas deconstructionists tend to decide that the Bible is not literally the word of God. Do you find that there's the same line in the sand there?
2: Eventually. So early in your deconstruction, you may still hold to quite literal um, readings of the Bible and be wrestling, trying to do some gymnastics and make the Bible literally say X, Y, or Z. Um, But as time goes on. Yeah. Sorry,
1: and my dad used to tell me there's this verse in Revelation that like nothing can be taken or added to this mm-hmm. book. And that was the thing that was presented to me to be like, and therefore Bible is inerrant, literal word of God and you cannot doubt it. It's a sin to even consider. And um My part of the first, first, first moment of deconstruction, really, as far as deconstructing the Bible as a literal thing, I was reading the Bible every single night, just a passage, and I stumbled on the one that I'd heard a million times about women not being able to speak at church.
0: Mm. And
1: I was in a particularly impassioned moment with God, like feeling very close to divinity and very on the right track. And I remember reading that and it truly hurt me. And I, I shut the Bible and I look, looked to God and I was like, can I speak freely? How, <laughs> how can you say that to me? How, how can you say that to me? Mm. Just because I have a certain genitalia, your word says that you know I'm not allowed to speak. And that was the very first moment that I felt in that moment of divinity that God was challenging me to look deeper and that was really the beginning of it for me because then mm. i started thinking okay if this is a human being that put pen to paper did god really say word for word everything and then as soon as you get to psalms you know you're like right. yeah the word of god that's literally david and journal entering and he seems to have a little bit of like manic depression or something. Like he actually didn't seem like a mentally healthy person.
2: Yeah. It feels like a weird invasion of David's privacy really ultimately. (laughs) Right. It's just kind of like, Whoa, this guy's not having a good day.
1: Yeah. He's, he's really out there. He's one of those characters that's really out there. And you know, same thing with Solomon. And then I started being like, okay, wait, if these are really these men's journal entries. And I know for a fact, God is not, saying these words through David, mm-hmm. God would then be like the most uh, what a, not reliable source of anything because David was not a reliable source emotionally at all, you know, so all of that said, it was really that, that one verse in Revelation that was like, don't you even think about it, don't you yeah. even think about considering that this is not the word of God. But then just logically, you look at those other passages and you're like, it's not. And then things start tumbling, like you said. Yeah. I mean, it's a
2: really brand new idea. The, the idea that the Bible is this kind of literal um, words of God that are to be taken literal, to not be explored and unpacked. The Jews never read it that way and, and still don't to this day. Um, and Christians never read it that way for for a huge period of time. It's a very modern idea to read it so literally.
1: Well, what's the historic uh, basis of that? Who, who did this to us?
2: <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a gradual evolution, um, for sure. But it, it largely um, only really starts around the Protestant Reformation, largely. But that's a lot of the time, because a lot of the, the saints, and, and it's not as black and white as that, it's a really complex and unfolding story. And you could trace some of it back right to the, some of the early church fathers, you could say, took things very literally.
1: Like Martin Luther, Is he see what he belonged.
2: So Luther and Calvin um, and some of these kind of um, kind of late Middle Ages kind of time um, around the Reformation and and leading out of that, but even really, it's only um, in the last kind of maybe 18, 90 years um, that that Christians really shifted where they were like, no no, this is an errant. It's it's infallible. Um, you know, if it says it in there, then God des- desired that it was penned that way because it perfectly represents who God is. Um, but the problem that you have, like you're saying, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, right? David has like this kind of schizophrenic break and you're like, well, which part of David here is the one that dis- perfectly describes God, or you look at, you know, I mean, God's going, Hey, I'd like you to go into that town and I'd like to kill every man, every woman, every child. Well, you can keep the young girls and you can divvy them up against amongst the soldiers. That's fine. Um, and, uh, you're like, wait, whoa, wait, 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 wait stop, 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 stop. You know, if you, if you went, if you were one of the, um, one of the men that had gone into battle and killed all the Canaanites and you've gone into the town and you're like picking out your new free house, right? Because that's the way God works. He gives you this new house and you go in and you checking out the bedrooms, you know, like, this is a nice place. You know, my wife and kids are going to love it. And you go into the back bedroom and there's like a 13 year old girl who's pregnant, clutching a three-year-old to her chest and you hold your sword. What do you have to do? What is the word of God, the literal word? You know, what did God say you had to do? We know the answer to that. All good evangelical Christians know what we have to do. But imagine as you're raising your sword about to do this horrific, like, I mean, just unspeakable thing. If Jesus walks in the room, what happens? Because for most Christians, everything changes on a dime, but you're not allowed to. For most Christians that are reading this literally, Jesus should walk in the room and go, yes, get them get them good, because this is the same God that celebrated those acts. And so we have to recognize that there is multiple um, narratives throughout scripture. Um, And so that's one of the things Jesus comes to do is he comes and highlights that there's two voices throughout all of the old Testament. There's God's voice of this is who I am. And there is man's voice of this is who I think God is. And they're both going on at the same time. And constantly, it's a wrestling match. This is why the scripture constantly critiques itself. You know, sometimes the prophets go, "Uh, that's not the way it is. It's different. And they change the way they see God. They go, oh gosh, yeah, I guess God could be more merciful than that. Cool. Yeah, let's do that. Usually they were upset about him being merciful, right? But and this is why Jesus comes. Jesus comes and goes, hey, you've heard it said eye for eye. Maybe we could do something a bit more loving. Maybe love our enemies. What do you think? Let's, let's give that a flow. You know, so he's critiquing the scripture. In fact, everywhere Jesus quotes scripture, he changes it. He changes it in his first sermon. He takes out the wrath of God. Um, he changes it there. He says, you've heard some someone said an eye for an eye. Well, that was God, apparently. So <laughs> Jesus is like, ah, some crazy person said this, but I think this. Um, or what about when Jesus gives the most important commandment to love your Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's what the Old Testament says, but he doesn't say that. He says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. Jesus adds, use this thing when you're interpreting the Bible. That's what that passage is about. How do you interpret the Torah? And he says, use, use your mind. Um, and so Jesus is given us um, permission to explore those scriptures in a way that Jews always explored the scriptures. You know, Jews came to texts and they needed to have seven interpretations before they could share their own. That's, that's the rabbinical requirement. Um, at least in Second Temple Judaism, which is where Jesus was. Um, and so can you imagine what pastors would look like if they couldn't preach on a Sunday morning unless they knew seven different interpretations of that passage and then they told you what they thought theirs was?
1: Uh, never happened. Um, that, that sounds amazing.
2: But it does sound amazing. And so this is the direction that tends to um, draw people that want to stay within that realm of Christianity that are deconstructing but are trying to wrestle the Bible. They start, with what they know yeah well the 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 revelation says you can't add or take away and and it says that all scriptures god breathed and but how do i do this and so as time goes on and as they study more they start to realize that's kind of like crazy no one actually seems to believe this threat church history and the jews don't do this jews do things really differently and it's their book right the majority of it and the, the bits that aren't their book they wrote right jewish people wrote the rest so um you know, it's, it's wild to think that we should suddenly adopt a completely different approach to this scripture. Uh, Rob Bell often quotes, he says, the Jews open scripture for a discussion, Christians open it to end the discussion. Wow. Um, and I think that sums up really, really well. And so I think for deconstruction, um, for a lot of people, it's about starting the conversation again. It's about going into conversation with God and going, God, what can I do with these passages? How do I engage with this? Who are you really? If I use Jesus' hermeneutic, the way he reads the Bible, to split between what God says about himself and what man says about God, if I use Jesus as the benchmark, I can go, oh, that's man's opinion and that's God's opinion. Um, So there's a lot of room for for people to go through these deconstruction processes and be really faithful to Orthodox Christianity, be faithful to Scripture, but a different type of reading Scripture. Um, Be faithful to the tradition, for sure, but probably not faithful to evangelicalism, uh, generally speaking.
1: What are some of the main obstacles you see presented you know, by people that are talking to you when they want to start doing this kind of deconstruction, especially like exactly what we're talking about, deconstructing uh, certain scriptures or experimenting with, have I been told what is true? Is it actually true? What are the main hurdles?
2: Um, honestly, low-key and even intense PTSD. Um, This is a huge issue within people that are going through deconstruction and deconversion. Um, Marlene Winnell is a psychologist. She termed the the phrase religious trauma syndrome, RTS, Mm -hmm. and that's a type of complex PTSD. Um, And so PTSD generally comes when you have um, uh, perceived, it might not be actually a real threat, but at least a perceived, your brain has perceived it as a threat of injury or death. Um, that's a rough overview It's much more complex than that, of course, but if you look at it from a religious perspective, what bigger perceived threat of injury or death is there than God's an all knowing God up in the sky an all powerful, all knowing God up in the sky, holding the big stick that is hell and just waiting for you to screw up. So as you start exploring, you're sitting there going, I'm going to go to hell if I'm wrong. I'm going to burn forever. God's really upset with me. God's angry with me. And not only that, most of your Christian friends, your pastor, your parents, your friend, your, your sister, you know, they're all saying the same thing. They're yeah. all going, oh, I'm worried for you. Oh, we're praying for you. Oh, you better sort yourself. I'm, like, mm, I'm really worried you're going to go to hell. You're going to burn forever, you know. Um, it's really intense. So you're looking at... Um, People, I've taught people that haven't believed in a eternal conscious torment concept of hell for about 10, 15 years and yet still wake up drenched in sweat because they're having nightmares that they were wrong and got sent to somewhere that they don't even believe exists in that context anymore. And so we're talking, this is deep rooted trauma, potentially. Um, And I say low key, because I think we all carry some of those components, we all kind of have some of that fear, some of that dread, some of that doubt, what if I'm wrong, all these kind of things going on, um, which carries shame, which carries guilt, It it all kind of holds us back from doing the work of moving forward and exploring. And um and and hopefully we can find a divinity that is more gracious that is more merciful that is more excited that can lead us into truth and isn't worried about us falling into sin um, or lies or however you might define or contextualize sin um
1: one of my favorite thing but yeah
2: i think that's a huge one
1: yeah well i love that pete ends said to me what if god didn't even love you what if he just liked you <laughs> and that was kind of mind-blowing because we're taught God loves you. God loves you more than anything. But we've been also given such contradictory messages. Like as a woman, it's like, Oh, God loves me. If I'm a virgin until marriage, God loves me. If I have a perfect sexual ethic, God loves me. Mm. If I'm being meek and quiet and if I'm submitting to my husband. So these are, that's conditional love. That's not, that's not even real love. If
0: yeah. You need
1: to be doing all of these things to be loved by the almighty. So I thought that was a really interesting thing. Cause I was like, who likes me? You know, my <laughs> coffee barista likes me. Like do, would they condemn me to, you know, I have mini conversation with them every day. Would they condemn me to eternal torture? Even if they saw me outside do something really inappropriate or mean to somebody else, you know, you've like, <laughs> just someone that likes you. So what Mm -hmm. if God likes you? Would he permit you to ask some questions? Would he be okay to hear that you didn't exactly agree with what your pastor just said this morning? Would he still just likes you? And then I think for me, when I started just pondering the idea of God liking Mm -hmm. me, then it gives you more permission from my experience to then ponder what if he also loves me, you know, and that is just a whole other level. And then all of a sudden for me, I'm at a different level of deconstruction where I'm like, well, then he can't love me only when I'm meek and quiet. Cause he's given me these gifts where <laughs> I talk a lot and I feel like a leader. And, you know, so I, then I all of a sudden have to deconstruct those verses and see where they're coming from and, And then again, like you're saying, the pushback, then you get accused of not honoring God. Look, there she goes, a progressive Christian, doesn't want to honor God, doesn't want to be what God needs a woman to be. Where at the end of the day, my main message is, you're allowed to trust yourself because you've been given the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. And maybe, just maybe, you should be trusting the Holy Spirit more than your pastor's interpretation of Paul's letters to an ancient church.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. I mean, it's incredible to see the shifts that can happen along the way as we have these kind of. Um, revelations of what a better God might look like, what a good God might look like. Because at the end of the day, this God that is holding a big stick in the sky and is obsessed with your actions and makes, and really terrified if you questioning things and getting slightly wrong, it's a really insecure God and a really like kind of weirdly like paranoid god like it's just it's a weird god right it really is a bizarre god to kind of conceptualize um if it was a person we would like look at this as a control freak neurotic you know whatever um and and to me you know i've
1: as well yeah yeah Mm.
2: Yeah, it was just really unhealthy, really abusive, ultimately, at the end of the day, anyway. Um, and this is, this is where we, we look at this, this very abusive tendencies. You know, if, you, if you've ever known someone that's been in an abusive relationship, this is very much early deconstruction. People deconstructing, question their faith, but keep going back to the same system. Um, trying, hopefully it'll be different. Maybe they'll respond differently. Maybe my questions will be heard this time. Maybe they they might put it differently in a way that I can understand. Like, And they consistently get traumatized, consistently get hurt. And then the other component of that as well, um, going back to your initial question of like, what are some of the biggest barriers, I think is the loneliness of this journey. The vast majority of people that stay in the church stay because of community. And that isn't true of people that are deconstructing. That's true of people that are in church, period. Uh, that's been shown again and again and again is the number one component that causes people to stay in church is community. Um, and so when you go through deconstruction and, and the faith that you've been a part of is all about believing the right things and they do other people once they don't tick those boxes or they don't do the right thing, right? Oh, you did sleep with your boyfriend? You're right. Right? I mean, simple as... Um, ah. Or if you're in, you're going to be a pariah here, and we're going to put a big scarlet A on you and like treat you like crap or whatever. And um, so, like,
1: what happens?
2: Yeah. Oh God, no question, right? And and so, what happens is you end up being really, really scared of being alone, um, and it's a very real fear because the people that do tend to bite the bullet do end up alone in a lot of ways. You know, this is the number one thing I deal with when I'm talking with people. Um, beside their personal existential kind of crisis of like, oh my God, who am I? What is God? What even is up anymore? If this isn't the case or that's not the case, the vast majority of people are going, God, do you know anyone who lives in London that's going through this? Do you know anyone that's in LA? Seriously, because I feel so alone. And this is going right back to that as I mentioned at the beginning, 2,700 people a day just in America million people every day just leaving the church every single day, not leaving the church to go to another church done with church. Yeah. And so the simple fact is looking at the numbers is there's probably someone living on your street. That's gone through this journey. Not even, you know, do I know anyone in your town? There's probably a couple on your street. If you just started knocking on doors, but you don't <laughs> do that. Right. Cause it's like the 21st century and we don't actually talk to humans. Um, maybe send my text if I've got their number. Or, um, <laughs> and so, what happens is you know if you leave say a baptist church maybe say you're part of southern baptist church and then you go oh i think um charismatic christianity is right and i want to start raising my hands and i want to start healing the sick was really easy to be honest with you it's not that hard a transition it's a little hard because you lose some friends and you're gonna have to make some new friends but you stop going to Southern Baptist church you look in your town and go oh there's three charismatic churches i'll try those three yeah nice simple you then decide actually maybe i'm a methodist nice and simple where's the methodist church you stop going to church and realize I've got problems with institutional church. I've got problems with some of these um, very fundamental approaches to spirituality. And I'm wanting to look at things more progressively. Maybe you could look at some progressive churches, maybe, but for a lot of people deconstruct the progressive church is actually only a a stopping point. And for some people, it never is an option depending on what they deconstruct. Um, And so maybe they have that option, but for a lot, they don't have any option. And when you're faced with that and you're looking at your friends never talking to you again, your church never allowing you really to be engaged there and, and to be there. When you walk in the door, you are like person non grata, right? Um, and your family even potentially going, you're dead to me. I, I'd rather you were, you know, I'd rather you had died than come out as an agnostic or, you know, like that. I've, I've heard family members being told that, um, you know, just look at oh conservative parents with a gay child or something it can kick them out of the home you know at 14 or something you know like we know families can be pretty intense in those kind of very fundamental contexts and so dealing with that loneliness and trying to develop some form of connection is huge and so that's another key component i think people like yourself and people like me can be trying to help people connect and find connection um, it's why I set up the deconstruction network, which um, is we do our research through the deconstruction network. But it's also it's a, it's a huge global map. And when you uh, sign up, you can put your city, and it puts you as a dot on the map. And it's you know as anonymous or as um, as out there as you want to be. You can choose your name and wh- how detailed you get on your address. I would re- wouldn't recommend putting your house number, <laughs> but maybe a city or something. And then you can search. I want to find out any how many people is there twenty miles from the center of LA. And you go, whoa, there's like 48 people. Holy crap, I'm not alone. And that, like, you know, and I, I had people, people going, holy crap, there's like two people in all of Chile. Now, Chile's a big-ass place, right? And they were about 300 miles apart, but they were like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. And it's still very early. And, and as time goes on, maybe there'll be 100 people in Chile, I don't know. Um, but what I do know is we can be making steps to try and make this a less lonely process, Mm-hmm. will make a huge difference in how people feel about going through it and how people do go about it. Even just having someone that's with them that kind of can support them. You know, I know that you're active and with your community replying to comments, maybe answering DMS and stuff. I know you've messaged me at times and I spend three, four, five hours a day messaging people. I do this full time and that's what I do. I, I try to help people. That I
1: can't, but been, no, but yeah, who,
2: who can, right? I mean, I, I'm very lucky that this is what I do. Um, And I choose to do that. I choose to not be able to do a lot of other things so I can be one on one helping people. But I can still only do so many. So if we can create support groups and people and communities, I think that's going to make a huge difference because that is what people are crying out for. You know, when we've done surveys and we've asked, "What is it that you've grieved the most?" Is it you've lost your relationship with God that you used to have? Is it you've lost the notion of God, even a a God at all, for some people? Is it that you've lost, um, you know, um, the your ability to worship, uh, your ability to pray? If you, you lost your faith, you lost your whatever it might be, the number one thing that people lose that they grieve is their community and their family and their friends. And so I think that's the number one thing that um, we can be trying to recreate um, for people and help people find. Um, and it's the number one thing you can do. If you're deconstructing, prioritize this beyond anything. Whatever you can do to pro- to connect with other people will make this process a hundred times easier. It is brutal and hard no one chooses to deconstruct this is the fascinating thing is one of the myths people like choose to go and deconstruct most people stumble into it and they'd end up flying off a cliff somewhere (laughs) you know like it's it's not like a oh that looks fun i'll go do that no this is terrifying it's painful it's hard and it usually comes because you were seeking god so passionately that you found out that things aren't the way you thought they were god takes you out of you know, whatever you were into something new, but it's scary and it's hard. Um, and so we need to make it easier.
1: I don't know anyone that's irreverent and no holds barred in that process. You know, I, mm. like I said, on my quote, prodigal son journey, I just didn't know there was another option. I didn't know. That there was a different way to go about this, which again is why this space and creating this space for everyone is so important because I don't Mm -hmm. want people to make the same mistakes that I did if they can avoid it. And, you know, I love that you're doing the same thing. Everything you're saying too is reminding me a lot that the LGBTQ community has really created a great blueprint for us, I believe, because Mm -hmm. that is one community that is alienated, ostracized, kicked out of their families because of a lot of different religious practices, but Christians are some of the main perpetrators of that offense yeah. and heartbreak and, you know, worse, you know, suicidal ideation, all of that stuff. Um, but for me, I look at the LGBTQ community and, and I tell my LGBTQ community in the Goddess Gray circle you choose your family, you're given family, but then there's a family that you choose. And if your family is constantly or even occasionally, and that's enough, hurting you deeply, like making you second guess and questioning who you are as a person, whether or not you're worthy of love, whether or not you are needing forgiveness, quote, for just loving who you love or being who you are, you don't have to keep showing up in those same spaces Mm. and people and torturing yourself. And not that it's your fault, but you know, it becomes like if at Thanksgiving, every time you leave weeping, not sure of who you are anymore, guess what? You don't have to go next year.
2: Yeah. There might be a better Thanksgiving for you.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And if they want to see you even more, so you set up boundaries and you're like, okay, I will come to Thanksgiving next year as long as, no one talks about my sexuality being a sin or sending me to hell. You ask me about my school, who I am as a person, sports, like anything else except this. Right. Um, or even better, do some of your homework and try to begin getting your head around where I'm at and actually accept me for who I am. But second best case scenario, you're setting a lot of healthy boundaries for the people around you. And I yeah. don't. I truly don't believe we need to settle for anything less than, than being surrounded by people. Life is too short. We know it even more now in Corona, you need to be really selective about who you're allowing in your life. And again, to your point about finding your community, it does suck. It's mm. terrible to be like, oh, I can't be around my grandma anymore because she makes me <laughs> fall into an existential crisis every time I leave her house. It sucks. But at the same time, Again, the LGBTQ community has been doing this for decades, and I think that progressive Christians can take a nod from that. Maybe we can start having our own parades soon, too.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. The
1: forest would be full of LGBTQ people okay. because that's another thing. A lot of that community is coming to progressive Christianity not because they're just so intent on sinning and they don't want to hear their sinners anymore, it's because we welcome them into a very, very intensive exploration of their faith and what it truly Mm. is and what the Bible truly means to them.
2: Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I've said a hundred times that um, there is a parallel and it's by no means whatsoever as hard a journey that uh, most LGBTQ plus people have to go through. There is a parallel of, of coming out of, of you know, the, the people go through this journey on their own for a long time. It's very much an internal journey for most people for a long time before they kind of feel, and oh, maybe I can feel like a few friends that maybe I can tell and bit by bit. And eventually you tell your mom and dad and God, I hope they don't kick me out of the house or, you know, I'm hoping invited to Thanksgiving next year. But there is that component where, I mean, a lot of people, this is a deal breaker. This is it. You're done there is no i i mean i've seen again and again and again i've had this happen to me where you know people realize where i'm at and it's like that's it i just never hear back from them like i'll text them hey how's your day nothing i mean I'm, i've got like a wall of like you know one-sided text i'm like i guess we're done okay i'll move on i guess like um and that happens a lot and and, and so it's a very painful um process that people go through it is it's, it's it cannot be understated like how horrifying going through deconstruction is. And so I think as well to people that are listening, I know you have a lot of people that are, have contrary perspectives that listen and, and watch you. Um, people that aren't going through deconstruction, but you have a friend that's going through deconstruction, kind of bear that in mind that this is a really hellish process most likely for them. Now, not to say that they're not excited about learning some freedoms and realizing that God might be better than they thought he was. And you know, there's different elements, but it's really painful for most people. And and actually, if you can be there for them as a friend, and put your spirituality and your how much they're wrong and evil to the side for now because realistically if you want them to come back and change anyway this is the best method it just is okay so listen to me is from a manipulative perspective sit, sit and listen to them sit and listen to them give them space to be themselves hug them when they feel like they're broken and crying and just ready to die um and just be there for them i think honestly you will learn so much about what they're going through um, and you also create space to have healthy conversations, right? And, and I think that is hopefully what everyone wants: is to be able to have deep, real, communica- uh, you know, connection with with one another. Um, and so there's a lot of room for people to to be doing the right thing, whether you are yourself deconstructing or not. Um, yeah, that's that's there. You know, that there is that opportunity.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And. Now that we're nearing the end, I like your segue into more positivity because it definitely is painful and difficult and it can be incredibly alienating. Um, At the same time, I'm really curious where you see people land in the end, what kind of emotional, spiritual change you see, where does this journey lead people?
2: It's a great question. So I, I've studied the last kind of three years uh, on the side. I brought a whole series of teachings on it, but, um, I said on the side, um, human psychological development, because I think it's fascinating that we can see through cultures and through individuals, we can track across the last kind of 80, 90 years. We can see how humans grow and develop psychologically. Um, and for a lot of people, um, evangelical Christianity is at a very specific stage of psychological development. It's it's called traditional stage. And and that seems like a pretty good name for it really, isn't it? And it values safety, certainty, and security. Um, Now most people that are deconstructing go to the next stage, which is stage modern Um, and modern stage values um, self autonomy. um, It values rationalism. It values logic and it values, um, uh cre- creation um for the sake of the self um and so wow, you That's
1: very s- dangerous like if they, i was a conservative listening to that i'd be like oh see i knew this was demonic
2: each stage will terrify the stage <laughs> before and the stage after and and it just is that way you know this is why you know you have such head to head um matchups with different types of people is because usually they're you're where i'm going to have to go and i don't like it Or you're where I came from and I really don't like it because you've reminded me of all the bits in me I don't like that I haven't integrated and, you know, really done the work to kind of incorporate healthily. Um, But that's really where most deconstruction, um, most people that are deconstructing are. And and it can have really, really healthy. Every stage is good and bad. It's not, no stage is right. That's not the way to think about human psychological development. That would be to say that a two-year-old is worse than a toddler. And they're worse than uh, oh sorry, two is worse than a teenager, and a teenager is worse than a thirty-year-old, and a thirty-year-old's worse than an old person. We don't grow like that, right? It's not like a certain stage of life is better or worse. It's just pros and cons to each stage, and hopefully, we're growing in a sense as we go through them. Um, You know, a chicken isn't uh, better than a dinosaur, but there's chickens today and there's no dinosaurs, (laughs) so in a sense, it's better. (laughs) Um, But I'd rather be a dinosaur, I think, (laughs) and. So as we track human psychological development, the stage after um, stage modern is this postmodern stage. And postmodern swings back to being about community, back to being about groups. So it goes away from the kind of the self, but it's important to relearn self. I think this is what uh, that modern stage and that deconstruction stage is kind of rebelling against this, at stage tradition we have to like just be one of the masses and just integrate into christianity you know don't stick your head too far up just being in the mix don't you know mess things up just follow the authority figure maybe if you're the authority figure might be good but most authority figures aren't actually at stage traditional um they're usually actually a prior stage (laughs) that just really looks to work with that um the stage after that modern stage also has pros, also has cons, but it becomes a lot more focused on building community, on asking, it it integrates prior stages, so it still looks out for itself, it values itself, but it values itself not at the expense of anyone else, but goes, how can I be the best me possible, but actually look out for every other person around me? Um, And so I think we're going to start seeing as people deconstruct, generally speaking, if they stay at stage modern, this is where you see people... um, generally speaking, getting a bit nihilistic and going into deep types of atheism and agnosticism. Um, And that's not to say that that can't be at later stages as well as much uh, later stages will always incorporate still agnostics and atheists and stuff like that. It's not that one is right or one's wrong. Um, But I think generally speaking, we'll start to explore um, and be a bit more open to community. You're going to listen to interfaith. You're going to listen to other communities. You're going to try and incorporate other communities and, 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 and be a bit more holistic. And I think this is where generally speaking, we're moving as a whole. People at Deconstruct are moving in that direction, whether or not they stay within traditional progressive Um, agnostic hinduism buddhism it's not really relevant to the faith expression they choose Um, it's much more about the psychological state of growth and then they find how to interpret that into the faith that they choose in a sense and so um, i think when you've had a christian background you're more likely to kind of reintegrate when you do kind of reconstruct a lot of people call it um, you tend to reconstruct something within the faith uh, package that you have and you look like you know the McLarens and the Shane Claiborne's and the kind of progressive movement that's kind of birthed out of all of those guys in the late 80s 90s um, I think that's that's a really common kind of expression it's very social justice orientated it's very outward looking um, but very powerful in itself it knows its boundaries and those you know who I am and, and what I deserve Um, So I think that's really probably what we're looking at. There's much later stages as well. And and people that want to look into this, honestly, there's dozens of models of human psychological development. But one of the best, I think, because it breaks up so well, um, is something called spiral dynamics. And so if you Google that, you can find out I've got uh, like an eight-part series. It's like 15 hours on YouTube if people want to watch it. It's, it's okay. in great depth, but um, but there's a lot of great stuff in just understanding how, and it will help you relate to other people at different stages as well. You go, oh, my mate's at stage traditional. Oh, wow. This is how I relate to them. When you're deconstructing, if you're talking to traditional people and you know they value safety, certainty, and security, you know when you're telling them about your journey, how do I make them feel safe? How do I not mess up their certainty too much? Because they're going to freak out and get aggressive and get angry if i can kind of keep them feeling a bit safe this might actually work as a conversation Um, and so it's very helpful to understand people's psychological state as well
1: that's really interesting thank you for that i definitely yeah i think that's so important because i'm so exhausted by the arguments and the hatred is really what it's blossomed into and You know, I have to be really inward with that and see how much I'm contributing to that because I know that I push buttons and my intention is not to hurt anybody, but to like bring up questions that I know are valid, that were valid to me. But then at the same time, you know, you don't want to be instigating more anger from people that are conservative that, you know, it's just like, how do we welcome everybody into understanding what we're saying without hurting each other too profoundly or just, you know, bagging on each other Mm. important to the other person? How do we truly love each other through these processes? Mm. I think as well, like maybe this is because we're, we've gone a bit long. Thank you for everyone that's still (laughs)
2: watching.
1: No, it's great. Um, my last question, which you already began touching on is this concept of social justice, because that's the next thing it's I I don't understand it. I'm really curious to hear from you because when I see conservatives pushing back on social justice and demonizing it literally demonizing it it really blows my mind i'm like wait how do we politicize everything like how come every movement that i see is something positive that's moving us in a better direction like if it was back in the day when women were voting i know there were conservative people that were battling against that and i see it the same way i don't think anyone is less than me or dumber than me or anything but when i'm like when i see black lives matter rising and people being like black people need to be treated better in our society. The fact that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my conservative brothers and sisters are going to have something really negative to say about that. And they're going to want to not stand behind it. It's really hard for me to oh. with that. And it's really hard for me to not get more into that mode of being really angry at them. Cause I'm like, why can you, why can I consistently count on you to be against forward motion that I can only perceive to be positive. Are there negatives? Yes. We don't want people looting, you know, in the example of black lives matter. Yes. Looting is terrible. We can't be hating police. It's funding, like funding reallocation, not abolishing the police. Like all of these misunderstandings we have, it's like, yes, there are positive and negatives, but the very clear thing that I see is a positive thing that's trying to happen. If we could get on board and really balance what would work for right. it, and we could move there together as brothers and sisters in Christ in unity, as I believe we should. Why can I count <laughs> on you, Fox News, and all of you other <laughs> Christians that are on that side? to be against me on this. Why? <laughs> yeah,
2: It's really tough. So when we talked about the stage, traditional modern and postmodern, I mean, these three stages are always going to be at each other's necks and, and they will, as they grow and develop, try and navigate that a bit better and a bit more intellectually. But generally speaking, they're going to clash. Um, one of the i think i said before we started i'm just like so impressed by how you navigate just people that disagree and all these different things and and i think it's actually because you probably have a lot in you that is the next stage again which very few people actually have so kudos um it's called integral but it, it's it basically transcends the dualities of this is right that's wrong this is the black is right and the white is wrong or the you know we're we're over here on the left and not on the right um and that's how most of Traditional, modern, stage, uh, postmodern, see things is very black and white, very dualistic. Um, but as you're saying there, you start to, as you grow and develop, you start to go, oh, well, yes, okay, duh, obviously, like this Black Lives Matter thing is, is, it's moving towards something that's much, much better. But yeah, okay, fine. If we go back to this blue stage of where they're freaking out and they're looking for safety, security, uncertainty, one of the things that they're scared about might be valid. Okay, cool great. It takes something to be able to go and listen to them and go, okay, what might be valid? It's going to the, um, the MAGA Trump supporter in 2015 and going, why are you considering voting for Trump? What's going on? And not demonizing, them, not saying they're an idiot or whatever, and going, oh, it's because you are really worried about your job and how many jobs have been lost recently by your friends and, and Trump's promised you jobs and you didn't get promised job, jobs by Clinton wow, okay, wow, that seems like a really good point. No. You know, I'm going to talk to Clinton and see if she'll put in some jobs, right? I mean, would that have changed something for people? I don't know, right? But my point is, like, if we can listen to that person rather than going, oh, you're thinking of voting for Trump? You racist piece of, you know, like, oh, that's a good conversation, right? Uh, yeah. Now, it's really easy in this realm of social justice for us to get very ramped up, especially when we start moving forward into later stages where we're looking for social justice um, because, it does look to us really black and white, right? And it's really hard not to go, well, wait, so what are you arguing here? So just because someone in the organization was Marxist, you don't want black people to have a qu- equal rights? <laughs> Right? rights. Like I'm like, that seems like a big kind of shift. Um, but we have to remember, and this goes back to what we're talking about the Bible at stays traditional people want safety, security, and certainty, and they find it in authority figures given from on high, whether that is God, a pastor, a priest, a Bible, church tradition, whatever it is. Police officer. Police officer, right? I mean, well, and this is the benefit, the beauty of traditional, the stage before traditional is called often warrior. And it's the warlords in Africa mutilating people and running rampant rampant and killing everyone. You know, you look at someone like Joseph Kony. So you look at traditional and we look at it going, look at these backwards idiots, you know? And you go, well, actually, (laughs) if you contextualize it, they've brought a lot to society because I don't want to get rid of the police like you're saying. I'd like to reallocate some funds, but no, I like the police. And actually, I don't want to get rid of government. I think it's a good idea to have a d- democratic government. I would like to sh- change and evolve how we do it, but that's a great addition. And so we need to value what each stage brings and, inc- and and brings to humanity as we move forward. But when they are looking at those authority figures and going, that's the authority, that tells us what we can do, and we find safety and security in that. When when it's a Bible that was written 2000 to five, 3,500 years ago, And it says, women are property, right? And suddenly people are going, well, what if women were free and they could vote and they could get jobs and they could do their own thing? Well, if you are looking at your Bible as your authority and you want safety and security, mostly by maintaining the status quo, you demonize that change because it's terrifying. I don't actually know what that looks like. And my Bible doesn't tell me what it looks like. So I'm scared. Now that's an extreme example because we've moved past it and we've now, what happens generally is fear stops us moving forward. We move forward, we realize it's not that bad and we just accept it and move on. Um, But that's what we're dealing with when we're looking at tradition. When they look at something like Black Lives Matter, they're looking at, um, or any social justice component, they're looking backwards in time and going, that's the perfect Eden. How do we stay there if we are lucky enough to be there? Or how do we keep moving society backwards to get there? So they're moving that way. And when it's they see you moving this way, it's terrifying, it's scary. And so that's the dynamic. How can we help people see how things could be moving this way, but still be safe, still be certain, maybe even appeal to their authority figures. So if we can figure out, and this is where progressives might do really great work with um, with traditional uh, conventional Christians, if they're able to do the work, and if they're able to look past their black and whiteness, their dualism of like demonizing the group, if they yeah. can look past that, they could go, Actually, we've got some great ways of interpreting the Bible that might really help some traditional people see it our way if we made sure we valued how safe and certain they feel. If we could package it that way, we might move people in that direction. Now, generally speaking, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't. Not until people get more and more integral. That stage I was talking about where you move beyond some of the dualisms until we can stop demonizing each other so much. I don't think it's going to happen. So I think we actually just naturally have to evolve as humanity uh, bit by bit by bit. It's, it's going to take time, um, but we will get there. Uh, you know, as long as we don't like, you know, blow the world up with a nuclear bomb or, you know, drown in the oceans as we burn all our plastic or something, you know, as long as we don't do something along those lines, we will get there. It, it's a painful, frustrating process, but I really do believe um, we're moving in a healthy direction. Uh, we really are. And so, yeah, I don't know, some thoughts on social justice, but...
1: No, um, that's it, so incredibly insightful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Phil Drysdale. Where can everybody find you? And especially where can I find this network that they could plug in? Sure.
2: So the network is the So go there. Everything I do is for free. So every resource I create is completely free. I'm never going to ask you for money. Um, and so please use it, connect, message people, find community. Please, please, please um if you want to connect with me instagram is the way the truth and the life i don't know i I hate facebook and instagram but it is where i live Um, and so i'm really happy to chat with people connect with people um, give them resources i'm just phil drysdale um, p-h-i-l-d-r-y-s-d-a-l-e and so that's the best place i also am on facebook and you can email me. I check my emails once every kind of two weeks and I can go on Facebook if I'm forced against my will. Um, so Instagram is definitely the way to do it. And, and again, I've got my podcast as well. And I have lots of experts about this kind of topic. Um, and also I just interview regular people that are going through deconstruction in different contexts and packages. Um, and so check out the Phil Dreisdell show as well. If you want to kind of, um, listen, I do long form, like two, three hour, um, kind of podcasts, So they really go in depth. Um, and so they're, they're ones where you don't want to start a jog listening to that, you know, (laughs) you're in for a hell of a run. Um, but yeah.
1: Okay. Awesome. Thank you all so much for listening. We love you all. God bless.